Hear the word of our Lord from the book of Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Let's turn to the book of Genesis here. And we're going to turn here towards the last part of the book. It's going to be in Genesis 49 here. The pronouncements of Jacob to his children. So bear with me a moment here. From Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the book of Deuteronomy includes a permission by God for the people of Israel to have a king over them. But ultimately, the, the people that would supply the kings of Israel, as prophesied by Jacob, comes from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh, or until he to whom it belongs, which we understand to be our Lord Jesus, a direct descendant of King David. So whenever somebody asks me, well, what's your most controversial theological opinion? It's not theological in the sense of, like, I believe in X, Y, or Z blasphemous thing. I prefer to think of myself as a man that clings to simple Lutheran orthodoxy. But when it comes to the topic of biblical theology, or the school of theology that hones in on certain themes and ideas in Scripture or the, the central message of a particular book of the Bible. Something that you, you analyze it and you see, what is the author of this book really getting at? I do have a very controversial opinion. 
And I believe, this is it, I believe that the prophet Samuel was a wicked man just like us. That's it. I believe that King Saul is somebody who is wounded over and over and over again by Samuel the prophet. The, the well is poisoned from the beginning over and over and over again until Saul's heart departs from the Lord out of mostly sheer frustration with the power struggle that he has to engage in against the prophet Samuel, who, like us, had a deep-seated sin. Now, why is this controversial? Well, because unfortunately these days, King Saul is little more than a stupid sermon illustration for foolish pastors. He is little more than an example of what not to do in people's half-written sermons. He is he's demoted in people's eyes. Instead of being God's first anointed king in Israel, he's just seen as, well, this goofball, this idiot, this murderer that just from the beginning was always nothing more than a people pleaser and an idolater of his own kingdom, a worldly individual who deserved nothing but condemnation all the days of his life. But David is so great. But David is so wonderful. And I don't see it that way. Because the text of scripture does not bear witness to that. King Saul is scripture's tragic hero. By all means, an apostate by the end of his life. By all means, someone who most likely is damned. I hope not. I do hope that he repented at the end of his life. But King Saul is somebody who is a victim of fate. He is a victim of a power struggle that should not have happened in the beginning of his kingdom. And he is a victim of the sins of the prophet Samuel. Let's get into that. And before we talk about Samuel, let's talk about Eli. So from the book of 1 Samuel, if you're there, we're going to go ahead and go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at this because I want everybody listening to understand this is the word of God. In the word of God, while we do understand there are simple concepts that even your average man can understand, our Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty that we cannot, and he rose from the dead so that we can be saved, so that we can have eternal life with him. The simplest man can understand that. That's good. That is wonderful. But certain things in the Bible just can't be explained in this pithy way. You cannot explain giant chunks of scripture here in the Old Testament with Saul bad, David good. Saul bad, Samuel good. Scripture does not paint that picture, and I'm going to show it to you today. This is my most controversial opinion. So let's look here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in the 12th verse. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. 
This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So here, Eli, he's commonly referred to as the second to last judge, or the, the last judge of Israel during the period of the judges here. Samuel, yes, Samuel is the last judge, but Samuel has something of a different understanding of his position. He is a prophet the same way Moses was the national prophet of Israel, the same way Joshua was the national prophet of Israel. So if you look at what a judge does, Eli's the last guy. Samuel was much more involved. And Eli's sons here, they're wicked. They're running a con scheme to get more meat out of the people, but it's even worse than that. So let's look here at uh, verse 22 in chapter 2. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Now, the TLDR here is that Eli's sons, they, they perish. And as Eli hears about it, he falls backwards and dies. And one of Eli's sons, his wife goes into birth, and the child's name is Ichabod. The glory has departed. Not a happy story. But at the end of the day, it is God said, these, these men are going to die. I'm going to punish these men for uh, profaning my sanctuary, for profaning the ark of the Lord, and for doing all this heinous stuff, taking their pick of the litter when it comes to the women, committing adultery rampantly. Again, one of them at least was married. Doing all these evil things. But what happens with Samuel? After Eli dies, it's not a long time after Samuel becomes judge over Israel and their national prophet. So let's go ahead and skip over to chapter 7 here. And we're going to read about Samuel's tenure as judge over Israel. Starting in the third verse of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel in Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, There we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Let me repeat that. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. Did Saul become king while Samuel was alive or dead? It was while Samuel was alive. Samuel is the man that, we, as we will read, anoints Saul to be king over Israel. Then what's he doing judging Israel? All the days of his life, as opposed to judging Israel until King Saul is coronated? Is that the Bible saying to us that maybe, maybe there's something wrong here? Because Samuel shouldn't be a judge if there's a king. The sense of the judges here in the book of Judges is that they are deliverers. They are supposed to be a type of Christ. Somebody who, in their life, yes, they do rule over a most or a part or all of Israel. But their main function is to deliver the children of Israel from their enemies. From people who uh, put them in chains, who oppress them, who harm them. God raises up these judges to do that. And then, when they're done delivering Israel, that's it. (laughs) Most of the time, they just go back to their jobs. Shamgar is a good example of that. The man with the ox goat, I believe. He rises up, saves Israel, goes back to his job as a farmer. That's about it. But what's Samuel doing holding authority over Israel after there's a king? Somebody who is supposed to rule. I don't think the law of Moses permits that. In fact, we just, we read this regulation about a king having authority and ruling over the people of Israel. And yet here Samuel is in a position where he, by virtue of being a judge or at least doing the judge bit here, 
is trying to rule over Israel, well, there's already a king. And that's the first part. That's the first problem here. But at first it does look really good, doesn't it? The people, they put away their balls and their ashtoreths. Should have burned them, should have destroyed them, but maybe that's a euphemism. Put them away. As 1 Samuel 7 says, they put away these idols. And now Samuel is there leading them and God uses him to lead them against the Philistines. Everything's great. Except that, okay, he judges the, the children of Israel all the days of his life. And there's another problem. Let's go to chapter 8 here, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Oh, well, that's strike two. Who raises up the judges over Israel? God does. Not a man. So Samuel already, we, we see here, before Saul is even mentioned in the Bible, before his name is brought up as somebody to be anointed king, Samuel is a judge that decides his sons should be judges too. As though it were a family trade. Now the last time we see this is with Gideon, and that ends in a nightmare for everybody. The last time we see this, it leads to war. Because man choosing who rules is not appropriate. God raises up the judges. And Samuel here presumes that he can just make his sons to be judges. But let's go ahead and keep reading here. So again, from verse 1, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The people don't even wait for Samuel to discipline his sons. They, it's like they had Eli fresh in the memory here. They said, you know what, we're not even going to wait for this. Your sons are corrupt. They're taking gains. They're taking bribes and everything like that. You give us a king. Right now. <laughs> you can't do this job anymore. You're fired, Samuel. The people now do the exact same thing that Samuel just did. Samuel, a man decided that his sons were going to be judges and rulers over Israel. And then Israel, the, the uh, elders of the communities there, decide by their own accord 
to say, no, we are going to have a king. Set one over us. They decide that someone needs to rule over them. And in both instances here, God is not raising up a judge. God is not the one doing this of his own initiative here. Instead, it is humans deciding. Here's who we want to rule over us. I'm not going to trust God to fix this for me. This intolerable situation. No, both Samuel and the elders of the people of Israel sin in this matter. Now, again, the problem here is not wanting a king. We just read from Deuteronomy 17 that God says, yes, when the people rise up and declare their need or their desire for a king, like the peoples of the nations around them, that's not a sin. But here are the regulations for it. Their real sin wasn't in wanting a king. Their sin was not trusting God to fix their situation for them. Just as Samuel's sin here in trying to set up a judicial dynasty of some sort, as the uh, Lutheran Study Bible calls it, is that is inappropriate. It's trusting man over God. But they get their king, don't they? With Samuel... Well, he gives one warning at first. His warning here in chapter 8, beginning in the 10th verse, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So you're dismissed. And then, after this, after he delivers the warning that God gives to the people, Hey, this guy is going to take the best of the best of your people, and he's going to take the best of the best of your stuff. You're going to have taxes to worry about. You're going to have your kids possibly dying in warfare. You know, your beloved little girl that you raised that was just asking for juice when she was two years old. Yet yeah, now she's uh, she's officially a baker. Cooking. Uh, good luck seeing your grandkids. <laughs> He's relaying this message that an official executive branch to the nation of Israel, an official king, it comes with some serious downsides and they go, that's fine. We don't care. Give us a king. And so God directs Samuel to the man that he must anoint. So let's go ahead and read here from 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. 
There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go, and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find him. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks has gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him, before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. <clears throat> the high place? The high place? <clears throat> Wait a second. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel chapter 9 here. Keep it right there and let's turn here to the book of Leviticus. Because there's a reason that high places are kind of bad, aren't they? We hear about one king tearing down the high places or another king uh, being a great king like Jotham, but there's still high places and people are still sacrificing on them. They're routinely condemned. And let's look here at Leviticus 17. What does the law of God say? Leviticus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside of the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. So, hmm, 
In fact, let's read a little bit more here from verse 8. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. And yet here, Samuel is going on a circuit. He is visiting these high places that are specifically called to be destroyed in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically disallowed for sacrifices, and here he is conducting an unlawful sacrifice on a high place. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the topic of unlawful sacrifices here. But we have a man already. What is the picture painted to us? Because the scripture says that if you're going to have a king, as we read in Deuteronomy 17, if you're going to have a king, they must Learn and love the book of the law of the Lord. They got to write down, copy down the whole thing, all five books, just for themselves. And they got to study it every single day. Now we interpret scripture with scripture. Meaning that we are going to judge the actions or discern the actions of any individual in any narrative in scripture by what the word of God says about that action. So we know that if a king is going to rule over you, you should not have a judge. If you decide to start a dynasty instead of trusting in God to set up the rulership in your country, and if you are sacrificing on high places, which are not authorized for the sacrifices where the tent of meeting is supposed to be, what does that say about you? It says that you are a sinner. And that is exactly what Samuel is doing here. He's violating the law of the Lord. He's not letting go of his control, his power as a judge, even when a king is selected over the children of Israel. And he is presuming that what he is doing is holy. Because he's still referred to as the seer, the prophet, the guy you talk to. Now again, I'm not calling this man a false prophet. God surely did uh, raise him up in order to be a prophet over the children of Israel. But we have to keep reading on here. We have to look at Samuel with sober eyes. Because this is the man who anoints King Saul. So let's keep reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning now in the 15th verse. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people." Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Um, did God command him to do that? Did God command Samuel to tell Saul, come up to the high place? Uh, just thinking out loud here. But continue on in verse uh, 20. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? 
Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I give you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down into the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here for yourself a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil. We're now in uh, chapter 10 here. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys, and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there, farther, and come up to the yoke of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel told him. Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now, as we are looking at all of this, we see Samuel is a real prophet of the Lord. 
the test of the prophets, does what they say pass? If they make a prophecy, does it happen? That's your test. But at the same time, we see a record on Samuel here. A bad record. He's making unlawful sacrifices. He wants to be in charge. And he seems to almost grudgingly obey God when it comes to the prophecies that he is told to give. This is not the kind of prophet you expect. Samuel is more like Balaam than Isaiah. He is more like the man who has his own agenda, but then just can't help himself when God gives him a word to say. Rather than someone like Jeremiah, who is willing to suffer, who is willing to die for God's will. Samuel has his own idea of what is supposed to happen. Because he's giving a true prophecy in the middle of sacrificing at a false place of worship. But, nonetheless, Saul becomes king. Now, at the very beginning of this recording, we read from Genesis chapter 49, which said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. A king's scepter, a scepter of rule which means that the tribe of Judah is where the kings are supposed to come from. Strictly speaking, before we even see King Saul anointed, we as the reader, we who are given the understanding, we should be interpreting scripture with scripture, we understand that Saul can be king, but it's not going to stay that way. And even if he dies as king, which he does later, King Saul is not destined to have a dynasty because of the prophecy that Jacob, father of the 12 patriarchs, gives that it is going to be from the tribe of Judah. So now we see Saul here, more or less, he doesn't want to become king. He doesn't want it. But God, well, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and He's a changed man. Let's see how that works. Continuing on here in chapter 10, starting in the 17th verse. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your households. Sorry, by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. 
Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. I have a question for you. Because we understand that they asked for a king, and God condemns their attitude, not their request. He condemns them trusting in man and trusting in uh, the king they want rather than trusting in God to give them a right and good ruler to fix the problems with Samuel and his corrupt sons. We understand that. But on the day in which you are to coronate a king, is it right to say, you worthless idiots, you filthy sinners, you wanted this, so I'm going to give it to you. Is that truly what ought to happen during a coronation, a celebration? Is that, is that a good idea? Does that reflect a good attitude on the part of Samuel here? That he sits there condemning the children of Israel in the middle of obeying God's will and bringing them a king. That does not say faithful servant of the Lord. That tells me bitter old man who still wants to be judge. But meanwhile, in contrast to this, Saul is hiding. He's hiding because, yes, he was anointed king. But he kind of doesn't want the job. And he goes back to Gibeah here with some buddies, some of these men of valor in case they're needed. He doesn't immediately start the whole kingly rule thing. But as he is destined to be king by the will of God, so it is that he ends up having to do that. The Ammonites, are uh, they attack and Saul... Well, God uses him to deliver the children of Israel from the Ammonite attacks. So, they renew. After he delivers the children of Israel, it says here in chapter 11, starting in the 12th verse, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Let, let's have a do-over here. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So, when we look at this, now... Now everything should be hunky-dory, right? Except Samuel comes up and starts speaking again. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? 
Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord, and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Be not afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's an inappropriate sermon. Maybe what Samuel says is true. But remember, this is right after they win this victory against the Ammonites here. And they're offering peace offerings. Saul has just forgiven the people who rebelled against his new authority over them. Everybody's happy. And suddenly, Samuel gets up there and decides he is going to lecture them on how viciously wicked and evil they are and why they should all die for their ungrateful behavior. Picture this. 
say a man and a woman fall in love. They fall in love and, well, they fall into the sin of fornication. And, you know, in the midst of that, they start feeling guilty because they were raised in the church. So they decide, let's get married. Let's get married. Let's make this right. So the man and the woman, they get married and the, the wedding is amazing and everybody's having a great time. And then, and then you have this reception, right? This is the dream wedding. Everybody's ready. Everybody's having this great party and feast. And then, and then the pastor proposes a toast where he calls the bride a filthy whore for fornicating and he calls the man a, a young idiot who will die for the sin of not, you know, not keeping it in his pants. And uh, everybody needs to know how their marriage is probably doomed because they, well, they started out the completely wrong way. Is that appropriate for the pastor to do, having just married these people? Is that right? What kind of attitude does that show? And what if the pastor said, Oh, by the way, I'm also going to be living in your house to remind you why fornication is wrong. And I'm going to kind of direct a lot of your affairs. Don't worry. I suspect that the father of the bride would beat that pastor half to death. (laughs) But Samuel here in chapter 12 He says, moreover, in verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Okay, good thing. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. What? Now, this ties back into earlier when we read that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He says, "Um, I'm going to keep praying for you guys. This is great. By the way, I'm also still in charge of you. I am still your authority as to what you ought to do in everything. Now, please enjoy your king. Samuel, right then, right there, he has poisoned the well for this relationship between Israel and King Saul. He spoiled the celebration. He expressed the bitterness of his heart. And he mixed truth. Not with lies, but with his emotions, with his anger and his passion in all of this. Again, he's right. The people did sin by demanding a king. It was okay to ask for a king. Not okay to be trusting in the power and authority of man. They should have cried out to God for a king instead of telling Samuel, Yeah, you anoint a guy for us. We're tired of you. You're fired. Absolutely. But everything Samuel is doing reflects a character of somebody who is not letting go. He is not giving this to God the same way that he ought to. The same way that the children of Israel are not giving these things to God. They're not submitting to his authority. And it looks to me, at this point, like there is nothing that... Saul does that Samuel did not do first when it comes to sin. Obviously, there's a couple exceptions to that. But this is your example. This is your national prophet. A guy with some serious issues here. Culminating in what 
I believe is the greatest act of hypocrisy in the whole book. Let's, uh, we're going to skip here. Uh, it goes on in chapter 13 for about seven verses regarding Saul's wars against the Philistines. Saul immediately, I mean, he was a man of war, starts trying to secure the national borders of Israel from all these um, Ammonites and Moabites and the Gibeonites and the, the Philistines. He's fighting them constantly to bring his people security. That's kind of his function in the grand scheme of things so that when the Davidic monarchy comes in, when David is anointed king, there is a coherent country for him to rule over. But when we move on here in verse 5, something happens, and I want you to pay great attention to this, because this is the first rejection of Saul. Starting in verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, to the east of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Did you catch all the problems with that? Did you catch all the issues here? Again, we interpret scripture with scripture. And I'll never tire of saying that. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Samuel says, Uh, Wait here, and in seven days I will be there for this sacrifice. Pushing Saul around, telling him what to do. He's the national prophet after all, and clearly he's the judge, and that means he's the one calling all the shots. So, Samuel lies to Saul. We know this because the moment Saul here actually starts making these offerings... Saul, uh, Samuel just jumps out there. 
As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. (laughs) So the moment Saul says, well, he didn't keep his word. Maybe he got into an accident or something. I got to do this by myself. Then Samuel jumps out of the bushes where he was hiding to point the finger at and condemn Saul for his unlawful sacrifice. Which Samuel was quite fond of doing. We discussed that he offered uh, offerings all the time on high places, which are not lawful for him to do. What did Saul do that Samuel did not do first? And now Samuel has the gall to accuse him of doing this, knowing full well that his own sacrifices were unlawful. And... He also lies. He lies more than once here in his little speech to King Saul. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That is a lie. Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Saul cannot have a kingdom forever. Has Has Saul read Genesis? Does he know this? We don't know. Has Samuel? Guarantee you being raised around the Levites all his life. He should have known. No, God would not establish Saul's kingdom forever. Because that belongs to the the tribe of Judah, not to the tribe of Benjamin. And furthermore, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. That, again, that is a half-truth. Yes, God did seek out somebody after his own heart, and we find that in the person of David. But when it says the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, that has not happened yet. David is anointed king in chapter 16 after this. Are we seeing this problem now? So Saul starts everything out. Going to meet the prophet at the high place where his unlawful sacrifice is. And then he gets anointed king. And at his first time, in his first coronation, Samuel lectures everybody about how terrible they are. Mixing in the warning of God with his own passions, with his own anger. And then everything is great. Everybody's having this real coronation after that, after Saul proves himself to be a deliverer in the same way that the judges of old were. And Samuel gets up there, and basically it's like he pees in everybody's Cheerios. (laughs) And says, by the way, I'm still in charge. And then he lies to Saul, so that he can sit there and wait to see if Saul in this double bind here, not knowing whether the prophet of God would keep his word. If he acts, if he does what every judge did, because there were judges that were not of the tribe of Levi that did perform sacrifices, and later on, there are kings in Judah that perform sacrifices. David performs sacrifices unlawfully. Solomon 
performs well he sacrificed to foreign gods too but solomon had unlawful sacrifices to god and yet saul he's the only one that gets fingered for it he only he's the only one that gets this condemnation here and it is not god in this moment saying by the way yes you have screwed up royally here it is samuel at this point sticking his finger in Saul's eye, being this thorn in his side that will not leave him alone. Now during this time, we have seen Samuel's actions, Samuel's motivation, looked at how Samuel does things and when he says them, what he does, how he is still trying to rule Israel as a judge when he should not be. Have we asked ourselves, what is Saul doing? How is Saul acting? What is he feeling? And what is this reflecting in? Well, we're going to get to the straw that breaks the camel's back. But before I do, I said that Saul's fate is uh, being a stupid sermon illustration by foolish pastors. What do I mean by that? I have never heard Saul come up without people bringing up here uh, verse 9 in chapter 13. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings because he saw why in verse 8, the people were scattering from him. So verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered a mikmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And what do they all say? What do all these pastors like to say? Saul was more concerned about the opinions of people than the opinion of God. He was a people pleaser. But is that what Saul says? Saul said the people are scattering. And I, I forced myself because I realized I had not sought the favor of the Lord. I can't just assume that Saul is lying here. He's saying, wait, wait a second. The people are leaving. They don't have a leader. And I, I haven't even asked God for his favor. I better go do this. I don't want to, but Samuel hasn't shown up like he had to, or like he was supposed to. So let, let's just do the offering. Let's seek out God. Maybe he'll listen. This is not Saul being afraid of the opinions of the people. There is some of that later. But it is foolish and exegetically horrible to say in this instance that this is Saul being more concerned about his popularity than the will of God. Because as he says, I had not sought God's favor. So I forced myself. He's trying to be a leader in a position of confusion and not knowing what to do. But Samuel doesn't care. Samuel decides it's time to squish this king like a bug. So let's go to chapter 15. The straw that breaks the camel's back. Starting in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. 
Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed the kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattest calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak! And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and you are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, in the middle of this, this is where silly, foolish pastors will say, and, and by all means, I've been there. So this isn't me being arrogant against other pastors here. This isn't me being arrogant against other people who've, who've done ministry like I have. I used to think the same thing. That this is Saul lying to Samuel. That this is Saul taking Agag as a public example. Maybe he had it planned to execute him publicly. Right to, to make himself great. And he makes a monument to himself. 
And so this is Saul saying, look, everybody, I brought home all this great food. I brought this, this meat, right? That's, that's what a lot of pastors will say is, look, Saul is lying to Samuel when he says, we're going to have a sacrifice of this. And don't worry, they're all going to die. <laughs> but he's not. And in fact, we know that this is not a, a pride thing because Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? So he even admits that Saul here is, being, is still humble in this really weird way. And he says, listen, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And, and yes, I believe you, you were going to have these sacrifices, but... You didn't do this the way God wanted you to. So let us not use Saul as an example here, saying he was just trying to enrich his people so that they would love him more as king and swell up his pride. Saul's intentions, more or less, were good. But he had a presumption about what he was doing. I can do this my way. God said just kill them all, but what if I just kill most of them now and I, I kill the rest later in a sacrifice? Well, that's not obedience. Certainly not the obedience God wants. So God says, yeah, this isn't doing it. This isn't going to do it. And God, who knows how Saul is going to turn out, says, I regret that I made him king. But... How does Saul respond? Starting in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Wait, didn't God just say I, re I regret making Saul king? Hmm. I wonder why Samuel would say the opposite of there. Anyway, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, when you go through seminary, through Lutheran seminary, if somebody confesses their sin to you and says, I repent, I screwed up, I, I need pardon for my sin. Every single seminary professor talking about soteriology and talking about absolution will say, you absolve them of their sins. Samuel is not only a spiritual leader, the national prophet of Israel, but also as a man who, well, at least presumes to fulfill a lot of the functions of the Levites, there is no, I'm not going to help you get forgiveness for your sins. Now, screw you, pal. Yet that's what Samuel does. It shouldn't have been. No priest at this time would have refused Saul saying, I would like to make a sin offering before the Lord. I repent of my sin. Yet Samuel here refuses absolution to a man who is penitent. 
And before we say, oh, he's not really penitent, the text doesn't tell us he is not penitent. We have to go by his words. So King Saul here says, I have sinned, I need forgiveness, and Samuel says, no. That sin is going to stick with you. Then Samuel said, continuing on in verse 32, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So Saul requests that Samuel at the very least show up before the elders and honor him there for the sake of knowing that this, this judge here, Samuel, well, kind of what he says goes, and he still has a lot of authority as a man who didn't stop being judge when Saul started being king. And he knows that if Samuel just goes around telling everybody, yeah, God rejected him, Saul could find himself beheaded or something. But in the middle of this, Samuel takes a moment to tell Saul who's really in charge by taking the power of the sword into his own hands. Now this isn't necessarily something that is, strictly speaking, a sin. After all, the law does say, you know, God had commanded, this guy's got to die. But who had the authority to use the sword? Who was placed in authority for this? Romans 13 tells us that governing authorities are placed in because they bear the sword. And Samuel, as the man who presumes to be judge here, just took that from Saul. Let's finish up this chapter here. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made king, Saul king over Israel. And that chapter is the straw that breaks the camel's back regarding Saul. Samuel did not provide him absolution when he should have. When David commits adultery and murder, he simply says the same thing Saul says. I have sinned. I, I need forgiveness. And Nathan the prophet says, your sin has been blotted out. But Samuel doesn't do that. And it is after that moment we don't hear about Saul being dedicated to the Lord anymore. His security and trust in the Lord is shot. It is gone. It is from then that the Spirit of the Lord flees from King Saul's heart. And he begins his jealousy against King David. He begins to be a murderer. He kills all the priests. <laughs> Thanks to Doeg, the Edomite, working for him. He commands all these priests to die. He goes on a national manhunt trying to do this. He consults a witch. His character slides into apostasy. And I believe it is this moment when he is refused absolution that he does not trust in the Lord. Now there are kings that have done, in the Bible, 
that have done worse than Saul did. And Saul pays lip service to God at various times and even attempts to seek him once or twice. But it is from that moment, because this prophet did not see himself as the seal soga, the sole carer of Israel, Saul did not persist in the faith. That is my most controversial opinion. It is Samuel who bears a great deal of responsibility for the tragedy that is King Saul's reign. King Saul, who was destined to become a king when he did not want to be one, who was destined to not have a dynasty. He would not have his children be the national kings over Israel all the days of their lives. He would not have a line of kings the same way David did because, well, Jacob had said it hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. This will not happen. This will not happen. Judah will have the scepter. And if so if Samuel had said, yes, we will seek the Lord for absolution. We will seek the forgiveness of your sins here. But I've got news for you. All the way from our great, 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 great grandfather Jacob that you cannot be the king and God has rejected you. That is a consequence of your sin. But as you reign, there will be a peaceful transition of power to a man after God's own heart, King David. If Samuel had say this, said this, would there have been the tragedies that happened after? I believe not. Now, am I saying Samuel is a false prophet? No, he's a true prophet, and he passes the tests of the prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where you see if what they prophesy comes to pass. And indeed, that's what happens for Samuel's prophecies. But he did not do so in this in the pure way that he should have. He did not see himself as a soul carer. He let a worldly understanding of power get in the way of that. And so Samuel should be known as well a sinner just like the rest of us to be sure but a man with an agenda that is outside of God's agenda. That's why it says here, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. I suspect that as Saul's heart becomes blackened over these experiences, Saul probably killed Samuel. That's my speculation. Again, take it or leave it. It might not be true. But I suspect at one point Saul decided, you know what, I've had enough of this, this little peon prophet here pushing me around and doing nothing but condemning me when I tried to do my best and finally gave up. Let's cut off his head. I think that's what happened. So for all of, uh, for any pastors listening there, you're in a similar position with the people of your flock. And if all you give them is the law, and if all you give them is hardship and rejection and pain, they will turn, it is likely, they will turn away from the Lord, they will turn away from you, and they're going to do some horrible things. Because you 
were not their seal soga. You were not their sole carer. Let us learn from this cautionary example. Amen and amen.